0: Tonight, I'd like to speak about recognizing the seven factors of awakening in our practice. Sometimes it's called the seven factors of enlightenment or the seven factors of purification. One of the most important pieces of advice given by the Buddha was at the end of his life when he said, You are the light, you are the refuge. There is no place to take refuge but in yourself. You are the light. You are the refuge. There is no place to take refuge but in yourself. So those words to me are often a reminder that the seeds of liberation, the seeds of awakening are within this very heart and mind. They're waiting to be watered. They're waiting to be cultivated and to grow and to bear fruit. And they're here from the time of our precious birth. So a few years ago, I was taking my usual annual time for personal retreat, and this time was that time in Burma when I went to uh, for the first time to ordain as a nun, temporarily. So when I went to see uh, him, to pay respects to him, uh, the first time I went to um, have my formal interview with him, he said in a very straightforward way, "Why are you here? You have come from so far away, you know, and it, it's it's difficult to practice here because of the heat and the food, etc. And why do you come here this time, in this to practice this kind of renunciation?" And I replied that I came here to purify my heart. Uh, more and more as I go through the years so there had been a renewed sense of urgency for me and a renewed sense of needing to renew uh, my vows of renunciation uh, like a willingness to do more than I had done before and I wanted to face whatever was necessary to let go of uh, more of the defilements to uproot the deeper roots. So, I wanted new understandings to help me stay on the path because for some people think that, oh, as you go on, it gets easier and easier. But actually, as you go on, it can become more vivid. You know, all the defilements become more vivid. But you have to keep up kind of the strength of mindfulness to be commensurate. With uh, facing the defilements that need to be faced, so actually it can get harder sometimes. So sorry, that's bad news. But (laughs) (laughs) Um, so when I went to him, I said, "What should I do? You know, can you please advise me what the best thing is to do for practice?" And he said something different than I had heard him say before. He said, you must invest everything you have in the practice. You must invest everything you have in the practice. And that was quite the opposite of what I'd been hearing all these years Of uh, with Manindra saying, I would hear Manindra say many times, let go, let go, let go, meaning don't hold on to whatever is there. But Upandita was saying, you must invest everything you have in the practice. And how I interpreted that was to bring forth the qualities of the heart and mind that were already naturally in the mind stream that really needed cultivation, more strength necessary for deeper purification of greed and hatred and delusion in the mind, especially delusion. So I wanted to strengthen them in a balanced way and through the continuity of my practice. There are... There are three things, I remember them as three C's that Upandita used to always say. The first one was um, to watch the continuity. Continuity is really important of all the things that we could do in practice. Just keeping a steady continuity all during the day really helps to deepen the practice. And the other thing is compassion. As you go along, you know, bring a sense of tenderness to what you're doing. Everybody thinks Upandita was kind of like this uh, you know, difficult old teacher who just wanted you to strive, strive, strive. But he actually was one person who talked about continuity of effort, not effort itself, but continuity of effort, and also with that gentle strength that you could have, that gentleness that you could bring to each moment, that, that of compassion, and the last thing was clarity, to really be... He was one teacher who really honed in on the precision of the practice, to really be clear about what's going on, to to have maybe just enough distance from it so you're not glommed on to the practice, with you know, awareness and the object of it so close, but not too far away that you're kind of easily getting spaced out, but just enough space so that the mirror of mindfulness could really see the object clearly, and sometimes has to go closer and kind of connect and sustain. So, to watching watching out for all of that, so that there is clarity, and in that clarity, there would be the ability to see the nature of all reality, much in in that kind of clarity. So, these qualities that I'm going to uh, talk about this evening, and some of them. Bonnie and I have already uh, filled out, but uh, I might review a little more for you. These are already gradually being developed here in this support that we have for one another, in this silence, in this relative seclusion. And some of you have already been explaining them in your practice, in the way you describe your practice. I know that some of them are already present for you. And you will see, you know, when I list them all, you'll, you'll recognize them for yourself. So it's this steadfast continuity of balanced effort that we must have in the practice. Our commitment to explore what's really going on inside, to have this inner exploration and to really deeply see the nature of reality from this very inside view. So we're always looking outside, and that's fine. Not always, but I mean, our view is always out there and understanding nature from that point of view. But a deeper view is really understanding it when we look inside and see the various mind-body continuum details that happen moment to moment. So it's our commitment to do that and to know that not just on a day-to-day level, but a really deep level. Vipassana... When we use the word vipassana, it means seeing things deeply in a powerful way, not just in an everyday level, but in a very powerful, deep way, seeing things as they really are. So to realize the Dhamma, to experience and see things as they truly are, means to experience the true nature of reality, this moment-to-moment experience that's being offered to us all the time. So these seven factors give um, the mind and heart the strength and the refined balance needed to pierce through ignorance and delusion, to really um, see through what are the projections of the mind that we make all the time so that we're not kind of seeing beyond that. We're just seeing our own thinking and believing it and making more stories out of it, which isn't bad in our day-to-day life because we need thinking. But when we get lost in it at a time like this, and we're kind of lost in the content all the time, it, um, it it skews the view. We're not, we're really not seeing as deeply as we can. So, here are the seven factors, and I'd like to name them in, in groups. And again, in during the Dhamma talks, you're welcome to take notes. So mindfulness is the first factor. It's in, a, it's in a group all of its own because it's the linking factor. They call it the linking factor. It links all the others and it activates all the others when mindfulness is there and it strengthens all the others. So there are these three groups. The next group is the energizing factors. And these energizing factors... Are, Bring the energy up so that it can see moment to moment what's going on. And not this kind of oomphing energy, but this kind of energy that's long-lasting. So you have to modulate you know, how you're doing it to kind of strive and make a big oomph. It, it wastes your energy. It kind of depletes your energy too soon. But to have this moment-to-moment, moment steadfast energy, this is what's really needed in our practice. Because then... Um, it it helps us to in the long haul for our practice so these three energizing factors are first is investigation and second is effort or energy the fourth is delight in practice that kind of delight is the joy we get from just being content as we go along in our practice and um It's a kind of uplifting of the mind. That's the joy we're talking about in practice. I'll explain that more. So those are the three energizing factors. And the three stabilizing or tranquilizing factors are calm, concentration, and equanimity. Those are uh, the three stabilizing or tranquilizing factors. So you can see that there's a balancing between the stabilizing and the energizing. And then the first one, mindfulness, is the linking and activating of them all. So the knowledge of these qualities and being able to assess in your own practice what they are really uh, is helpful in knowing where balance is needed in your practice. So check it out. Sometimes... uh, People come to me, some of you have, and said, Oh, I can, I can see that this is present and that's present. And um, really starting to recognize for yourself what's going on might be a just momentary experience of delight in the mind, where it's not the delight of seeing something beautiful. That's, that's kind of uh, on the gross level. It's the delight of seeing how the mind... And land on something and see it so clearly and experiencing it, experience it so clearly without any um, lens that you're seeing it through. It's just so direct and clear. And so when just a very few things are in the mind, the mind is so light and there's a, a delight that comes up in the mind. Just to be able to uh, experience a moment of seeing So it's not out there in what is being seen, it's in the actual seeing. Or it's not out there in what is being tasted, but it's actually in the tasting. So a lot of um, uplifting can happen during those times. It's a source of empowerment and confidence in your practice when that happens. So we start to see the balancing take place in a very um, lawful way. So, you know, these factors are cultivated among many spiritual um, groups and tribal groups, and um, uh, they're, they're in many religions also, and they're not really brought out in the way that the Buddha brings them out here. So, you might have understood some of these in your own practice, in your own wherever your own indigenous group comes from, or um, I. I understood some of these factors from being a Catholic and saying the rosary so many times, and also doing novenas, you know, that kind of concentration that developed. So they're not, these don't only arise in the Buddhist teaching, but they're pointed out so clearly in many other, um, like I'm going to explain to you how it happens in in uh, Asian countries and particularly in this tribal tradition that I got connected to uh, Samoa, one of the islands in the Pacific near Hawaii. So in Hawaii, there are a lot of Pacific Islanders, and we learned from them. It's really wonderful to be around so many different kinds of um, indigenous groups, and they come to Hawaii for work and to educate their children um, uh, because there might be better schools there and it's really a, a great kind of mix where we learn from one another. I don't know if you know that I worked for a cemetery and a mortuary for 20 years, and that was a real, it, it, really good job when I told... Because uh, I worked with many different groups and many different cultures, and I was hired because you know I was of the Filipino culture, and there were lots of Filipinos. There are lots of Filipinos there, and they needed someone who would relate with them but I would relate with the others too and so it was interesting how uh, I was close to so many of these uh, groups from different islands and so much joy came to me from really learning from them and just watching them and how they interacted with one another so this is a story of when I was um, on the main island where um, the capital of Honolulu is on Oahu I was waiting for a friend and so I went to uh, one of the um, beautiful places where artistry is is shown and this particular artistry was about um, tattoos so this maybe was about 20 years ago or 18 years ago oh it was, now it's more than 20 years ago and um it was when tattoos weren't so prevalent here yet you know but they become so much so but they're very prevalent among the uh, indigenous tribes of the south pacific and so i went to this exposition of tattoos and it was a really hot day and uh, i walked in and there were many there were many drawings and there were many photographs of people with tattoos all over their body. it was um, a day when at the time of the day when hardly anybody's out, kind of like in the middle of the day. But as I walked through the aisles, I saw down one aisle a very big man. He was probably over six five, weighed about two hundred and fifty pounds by the looks of his body. And um, I knew from the tattoos on his body. Because we get to know these things, you know, when you live in Hawaii. I knew from the tattoos he was tattooed all the way from his ankles, all the way throughout his body and parts of his face. And and I thought, well, that would be what I'd want to look at, not these pictures. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know how I told you there's no political correctness in Hawaii. So I'm going to tell you something that's totally politically incorrect, but I'm going to say it anyway because we would say it in Hawaii. That when, when you're in a place and there's a you recognize a samoan, you don't go in that place <laughs> because they are really really fierce. So you don't want to be in there alone with them. But this was you know this was a man with a little girl next to him, and so I thought, you know he was quite interesting to me, and he was muscular and he was wearing this uh, open t-shirt, and as I approached him, which was okay for me. I just saw the tattoos on his body were still pulsing, and you know I could see, um, sort of they were still kind of raw, and uh, it was very hot and he was perspiring, and there was this uh, lovely little girl with him, and so I introduced myself and I said "I'd, I'd like to know if it's okay about the tattoos that you have on your body, and he was very comfortable to tell me and his body was kind of very warrior-like, as Samoans are, very warrior-like, have very warrior-like bodies. His gaze, though, was very kind, which which it is usually, uh, because I'm connected with a lot of these tribal groups there. So I asked him about the markings, and they looked sacred to me. I mean, they just had that look to, to me of being sacred. So I learned he was the son of a chieftain of a very high tribe in Samoa. And uh, he explained to me that he had gone through an, an initiation to inherit from his father the, the role of chieftain because his father was getting older, so he was not now going to be the chief. And he went through a sacred passage of having all these um, tattoos put on his body. So to receive the markings of his tribe, he was put in an open hut in the middle of the village. So this is where, as he was explaining to me, I thought, "This is what it's like when I'm in meditation." You know, it feels like I'm a whole. There's a whole bunch of people around me, and in this, um, in this uh, tattooing that he went through, he said it was very, very painful. That every time, you know, they. They use a shark's a very sharp shark's tooth, and they dip it in the soot of a particular burned tree. And what they do is they take that shark's tooth and they tap the soot into the into the skin. And I swear, I I would feel that when I'm sitting, you know, just feeling all the pain in the body, feeling all the prickliness. And um, as he explained it, I thought. It's kind of like I've been through this too in my own practice. And he said when that was done for him in the open hut, it was done practically the whole day. People chanted around him to keep up his energy and the elder men would take time, would take uh, their own timing and take their turns to uh, do the soot, to place a soot uh, of those markings on his body So he said, when they tapped the soot, he didn't know if he would be able to endure. And so I just related it to how, even in that tribe, you know, he was learning how to have this perseverance. To he was, he said, he really he could do nothing but concentrate on that particular place that was being tapped into his body. He had to have some equanimity so that there was no. You know, a, a weakening of that reactivity to what was going on, and he could remain still so that all the sacred marks could be put on very well. Because he couldn't give up; he just couldn't give up. If he gave up, he would—it would bring shame to his family, and um, his family would cause a weak link in the lineage, and there would be no leader. So. He really had to stay with it. And sometimes that's what I felt, you know, in my own practice, that I really have to stay with it. Everybody else in the sangha around me is doing their thing, and I can do it too. And that's the way I would feel when all of this pain would come in my own practice. And I remember he said these words to me, and so as soon as I could, after I talked to him, I went and I marked these words down. He said, the pain is like a burning sensation which was building with every tap. And that's sometimes how it felt to me. So I really related that sacred initiation to my own practice. And he said that when he he went into that initiation, it was like he was a young man, but he came out a matured man. And he really came out in a way that he said he felt as he went through that sacred initiation that he could be a lineage holder in his tribe and he could really take the robes on from his father. And it was so inspiring to me, you know, to hear this from another culture. And it goes on in many cultures. Um, So the effort to persevere, the calmness, and tranquility that he had to have, the concentration, the equanimity, the arousing of energy so that he could stay with it. So it was great resolve for him to simply be aware of what was happening. And so I appreciated the ways that all the indigenous cultures and spiritual traditions sort of inculcate this in in us with our practices and develop these factors through Patience and continuity and mindfulness. So we see the seven factors and their links in many spiritual traditions. And these factors in and of themselves are like family. They're like friends working together with one another. Not necessarily linearly, but each one supports the others and each one deepens the others. So when Upandita said, you must be willing to invest everything you have in the practice, then I realized, well, these are some of the qualities. These are major qualities to uh, cultivate. And when we see them, when we can recognize them, they are being strengthened. So don't pass over them just kind of like, you know, really... we're, We're so used to taking notice of the defilements... So at this uh, time in, in our practice, and some of you already have, start taking notice of these factors that are being developed. So in the ancient language that the Buddhist teachings are recorded in, in Pali, the term for these factors is Bojanga And it's a really beautiful language because uh, different syllables connote different things, and it really helps to understand uh, that it, it, when we say the word bojanga means enlightenment, but when we say enlightenment in, in the West, it can mean a whole different thing you know, something that you attain, or maybe you're you know, you experience bodies of light or something like that. But in, in uh, Pali, bojanga is composed of two parts that give it a, a particular kind of meaning. Bodhi denotes someone who really comes into, um, it comes into purifying greed, hatred, and delusion from one's heart and mind. And so that denotes enlightenment. And then uh, the, the part about anga means the factors or the limbs that create that to happen, that cultivate that to happen. So these factors or limbs of enlightenment, of purification, are called the Bujangas. And one of his disciples asked the Buddha, how far is this name applicable? That's how he said it in, in their kind of phraseology. How far is this name applicable? And the Buddha said, these factors conduce to enlightenment. That's why they are so called. And when we say enlightenment in the Buddhist teaching, it can mean purification, awakening to the truth of how things are, purification of all the defilements in the heart-mind. And so a lot of it has to do with kind of um, letting go more than gaining anything. So it's important to be carefully aware of the causes and conditions that nourish and contribute to a fully awakened mind and heart. And these are the ones I'm talking about now. It said that when there is a relaxed, continuous, yet clear mindful awareness, which is applied to uh, the four foundations of mindfulness, uh, then this is when Enlightenment, or purification, or awakening can take place. So, when awareness is applied to the predominant, which means the most obvious experience of the moment that happens momentarily, and uh, there is a clear connection with the what the object is and the and the mindfulness is, they connect. They these foundations are. Number one, sensations experienced in the body. So we're all doing that, coming back to the body or to the breath. There are also those feeling tones that I talked about the other day. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then there is mindfulness of the quality of the mind. And so that's when we're asking you to turn toward the mind and see... Are there defilements in the mind? Are there beautiful qualities like the seven factors in the mind? What's the attitude of the mind? So these are all qualities of the mind. And the fourth are the natural laws of why things are the way they are and how these laws are revealing themselves. So the fourth uh, grouping has more to do with kind of like the teachings that make up Uh, the different parts of the mind. For example, just in understanding the seven factors of enlightenment, sometimes we would understand, for example, when we see that, oh, there's calm in the mind, sometimes we relate it directly to the seven factors. And in that moment, you're really paying attention, not just individually, to the uh, attitude of the mind at that moment, but you're also paying attention to the fourth foundation, which is the, the kind of what it's encased in, the seven factors of enlightenment. Sometimes people wonder, you know, how is that different from the third factor? Well, the, sep- the fourth factor of the fourth foundation are things like the Four Noble Truths and the Five Hindrances, seven factors. So we see them kind of in groupings more. No need to hold that information. It's just a point of information. So in our practice, mindful awareness is applied to whichever of these is naturally appearing. So you don't have to look for them. They're just naturally arising in our sitting, walking, standing, or lying down in all our activities. So this results in the maturing of practice and the strengthening of each of those factors just by being aware of whatever's happening so you don't have to figure out oh this is the you know one of the first factor or the second you might just notice oh there's this concentration that's happening you know the mind that kind of goes towards something and singles something out and it feels really stable in that moment or the mind that is just it feels like a calm pool calmness you don't don't have to really um, say which factor it is so you don't have to memorize it in that way the Buddha said that if the four foundations of mindfulness are practiced persistently and repeatedly that means continuity of effort the seven factors of awakening will be automatically and fully developed so Really, practice is so so simple, you know, it's just bringing mindfulness to whatever's happening the four foundations of mindfulness. So, if you do that, these seven factors will automatically be cultivated. You don't need really to do anything else. This was always the Buddha's reassuring promise to us. So, the Buddha connects this development of the seven factors to liberating knowledge, uh, that if this happens, if we continue in this way, then the mind will become liberated. This is an assurance. He said, O monks, I declare that liberation by supreme knowledge has its nutriment. It is not without a nutriment. And what is the nutriment of liberation by supreme knowledge the seven factors of awakening is the answer. So so it's a really important um, saying and uh, proclamation of the Buddha that we should pay attention to. So this teaching is meant to help you become more aware and more knowledgeable of what's actually happening in your own experience, to really pay attention to it. And to recognize these factors when they appear. Luckily, we've got Google these days, or whatever else, uh, Bing, whatever else. So, um, saying you know, marking them now is really down good. Is is good now if you mark them down? But if you're not taking notes, that's fine too. Just all you have to do is practice the four foundations. So they're strengthened through being mindful of them. It's interesting that the beautiful factors of mind are strengthened because we need them on the path. They're strengthened by uh, with mindfulness, by mindfulness. But the defilements are weakened by them. Now that's an interesting um, law that happens. So the balance is to know where you might need more energy, where you might need less effort, and uh, how you could balance. Because sometimes maybe we're feeling we're striving too much, and that's too much energy. We're trying too hard, and we need to kind of back off. But sometimes we feel like we're backing off too much, and we're getting lazy. So just the right amount, just the right amount. It's always like um, uh, modulating what, what it needs to be for us. So I've always felt empowered with the healing kind of confidence to notice even the, pre- the fleeting presence of any one of these. It could be really fleeting, but it doesn't mean it's going away. It you know could be fleeting and something else will come up, and uh, the factors are always uh, passing away and arising again, passing away and arising again. So it's when we can feel we're really taking refuge in ourselves in this possibility for awakening to take place just by being aware of the four foundations it really comes down to that kind of simplicity and then we can trust that these foundations will arise that these seven factors will arise so of the seven there are three energizing factors investigation, effort, energy those are two-in-one effort and energy and joyful interest or delight balanced by calm, concentration and equanimity so the the first one is the linking factor which develops all it links all and it balances all the others to just the right degree uh, depending on the phase of our practice so take a little time to fill each one out and some of them have been talked about already, so I won't go into a lot of detail. It's a lot of information, too, so um, just take in what, what you can. and If, if, the, if your mind goes kaflooey, just let it go kaflooey, because you'll pick it up later on. I mean, we hear these things over and over again, and we pick up what we need to know, and just leave aside what you don't know, what you can't pick up. So awareness, mindfulness, interchangeable terms. This is not an easy quality to know because we're usually concerned with the object of mindfulness and its unique characteristics. But what are the unique characteristics of mindfulness itself, aware, of awareness itself? We want to explore that, and we are exploring that more because we're really paying attention within the awareness really trying to help you to relax into the awareness of the object and not be glommed on to the object so much, but being more rested in awareness itself. So these are some things um, that help to describe the different functions and manifestations of mindfulness or awareness itself. They'll help you to understand and kind of more deeply know every side of it. So this is from uh, the Buddhist psychology, the Abhidhamma. And it's also listed in the path of purification. This, uh, You know, you've heard the, about the Visuddhi Magha, some of you. So the function of sati, sati is the Pali word for mindfulness. Now, why do we use the sati? You know, in a lot of sati, and a lot of these words, dhamma, karma, all of that... Is because if you just say a one word translation of it, it's not enough to really describe the whole thing. So, in a lot of uh, translations of these ancient texts, um, the authors will will not translate certain things into English. Might be, you know, translating the glossary, a longer way to describe it. But um, in the remainder of the book, it remains in Pali because it's so important to to preserve the Pali, because it's so much more descriptive and truthful. So the function of sati, which is mindfulness, is to not forget. What does it not forget? It does not forget to be awake in the present moment, to be awake to what's happening in the present moment. There's also, they use also the word remembering. It doesn't remember the past, it doesn't remember the future, it doesn't think about the future. It remembers to be in this moment, in this present moment. So it's constantly remembering to be awake to whatever's happening now. So in, in this study that we're doing, of the mind-body continuum, we're not looking at it psychologically or astrologically or scientifically or in any other way. We're looking at it in in this just very direct way. Awareness and whatever is showing up in the present moment. So this means that the mind is not ignoring what's going on. And the major cause of suffering, what fuels the craving and the aversion, is ignorance. Ignorance and delusion. And so uh, this really, this remembering to be in the present moment and really being clear about what's going on in the present moment is the exact opposite of ignoring and of delusion. Ignoring is a little bit different. Ignorance is a little bit different from delusion. Ignoring is when can't even see, don't even know what's going on. The mind is turned away from it, uh, and it's not even being with it at all. It's just ignoring what's happening. Delusion is when the mind is seemingly paying attention. But it looks at that object and sees it in, in a deluded way. So it, it translates that object into something that it's not. For example, it may see um, something that looks like uh, a snake, but when it gets closer, it's really a stick. You know, so it translates what is going on in a deluded way, in a deceptive way. It's kind of like the mind being in some kind of deception. So what it really refers to, it sees impermanence as permanent. It sees um, really the uh, anatta characteristic or the selflessness, the not-self characteristic as self. And it sees the dukkha characteristic as uh, something other than that. You know, dukkha characteristic is Understanding that there can't, there cannot be any lasting satisfaction, but delusion sees it. Oh, this is going to last forever. You know, this whatever is happening in the moment is going to last forever. So the function is to remember to be in the present moment, so that ignorance and delusion and delusion do not arise. it sees it very clearly. So, the Buddha in in one of the sutta was very succinct. Um, And this is in the Bahia Sutta. There's a whole beautiful story around it, but I just want to get to what the Buddha said. Another time you'll hear this story. Uh, This person came to him and said, I want you to give me the shortest teaching. And maybe that person knew that he was going to die pretty soon because right after he got the teaching, he did die. And so the teaching was very short and succinct. And the Buddha said, In the seeing, let there just be the seeing. In the hearing, let there just be the hearing. In the tasting, let there just be the tasting. In the smelling, let there just be the smelling. In the touch, sensation of the body, let there just be the sensation In the thinking, let there just be the thinking. So it goes through every uh, physical door, body door, and then the mind door. And what the Buddha was saying was, don't go into the story about it. Just stay with the exact experience of it in that moment. So not about the object of what is being seen, the object of what is being heard, but just the bare fact of hearing, of seeing, of touching, of smelling. So it's the obvious level of what's going on, and really stay present to that. So it's like a clean, clear mirror that doesn't distort anything, doesn't deny anything, doesn't add anything, doesn't uh, go and hold something because it's uh, pleasant, or push it away if it's unpleasant. It clings to nothing, it refuses nothing, it receives the uh, reflection, but it does not keep it. A saying by Chuang Su. So this is uh, sati, this is that mindfulness. That's the first linking factor. And the second factor is investigation which is an energizing factor that's activated by mindfulness. So this is not the investigation like we're trying to figure out our family of origin stuff, or which is really important to do in another modality. Um, so I, I really believe that psychological understanding and the Dhamma can feather in together really well. But when you're practicing here, really keep them separate because it really helps you not to get so confused and really be with the present moment in a very pristine way. So investigation is not investigation in any other way, uh, scientifically, philosophically, etc. It's uh, being with that present experience of just hearing. It's really simple, of just seeing. Because when it's really, really close to those experiences, the deeper understanding of seeing the impermanence seeing the not-selfness of it seeing the dukkha nature of it can be seen and this is where the buddhist teachings really leading to because when those three characteristics they're called universal characteristics are seen those are the factors that cause liberation to arise because then we start living in the reality of how things are instead of the projections we put out there all the time, which are not the deepest understanding. So, investigation of the present moment, not of what was in the past, not of what could be, but just this present moment. So, just want to give an example of one time. um, I was in retreat and constantly reviewing. It was... it was a time when you know, I'd come from home and there was something going on between a friend and myself. This was maybe about in the 1980s, I remember. And, um, and I didn't know how so well to not get lost in thinking. And so I went to my teacher, Upandita. I met him at that time and I was reporting this constant thinking about a certain subject matter where a lot of anger and frustration came up. And he very sternly said in the middle of it, he he just stopped me from explaining the details of it which were creating a more constructed and solid sense of self, just having to explain it all, right? So he says, stop. (laughs) And so he just said, uh, withdraw your attention from the thoughts. And it just felt like, it just kind of felt like just going back in that kind of withdrawal and seeing the thoughts just, you know, do their energetic thing, go by and he said, connect and sustain your attention on what is fueling it and he asked me, what's fueling those thoughts, what's underneath them it was all translated from Burmese into English and I said, anger and he said, be with the anger Bring your attention to the anger, and, and it was frustration too. And frustration when that was there, and and really connect your attention to that. Not glom onto it, but really feel it. Sometimes get close to it, not so far away that you're going to get lost in the thought again, but not so close that you're going to start digging into it and making a self out of it. So just enough. Sometimes need to be a little closer sometimes a little further away, just enough so that you see what's underneath this, this thinking. And so really just noticing that, that's the kind of investigation we're doing here. Like we're, we're trying to understand, sometimes we say, what's the attitude of the mind in relationship to that? And that, that, that koan brings the answer, you know, whatever, what could be fueling it. So sometimes I just need to ask myself, what's fueling this thought? It it might be confusion. It might be wanting a result, wanting an answer, wanting to know what to do. So this is the kind of investigation we're talking about. Not to get lost in the content, but to really um, see what the attitude of the mind is. What, What is the more predominant? It might be what we call the elephant in the room, that we're not seeing. So, when we get a little bit too much caught in thinking or the mind, it gets too loose. It really helps to go someplace where you can really stabilize the attention. Sometimes I just come to my hands. Today I was talking to somebody about um, how this can happen. You know, the mind gets too loose and it always goes to some kind of thinking. But if you go back to the breath. You might feel like it's so familiar, you know, that actually the habit pattern, the default setting when we're going to the breath and just go off to it, and breath and go off to thinking again. Try something else. Go back to some other place where maybe you can feel touching in the body. And then that's another place where you can ground the attention. And from there, you can really feel the connecting and sustaining and Sometimes I use different touch points, like t- eyes touching, mouth touching, hands touching, and I just kind of go through the different touch points in the body, and it just becomes another place of stabilization. If you're finding that the old ways are just are different causes of um, of habit patterns arising, then try something new. You know, come to the buttocks touching the chair, or uh, I just told you a way, you know, I, I have different touch points, one, two, three, four, five touch points, the eyes, the mouth, the hands, the buttocks, the feet, and I just go this, really touch it, touching, 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 slowly, and really feeling it, and that really can help concentrate the mind. So sometimes you do need that kind of concentration. So that's the energizing factor of investigation. And then we have effort or energy. Um, and this is not the effort to change what's going on, to improve it, to get rid of it, to gain something, or to figure something out. A lot of our energy is totally lost in trying to figure something out. Sometimes people come to a retreat and they you know because they're new and they don't know yet what it's all about. So they they even put on their sheet that I want to figure out whether I should get divorced or not. You know, something kind of like come here to figure a problem out. But don't you have all been in practice enough, long enough to see that we might reach a little bit of an answer, and it's like bing, it feels really good, but it's really not totally satisfying. But because it felt good the mind rolls around again to try to find another angle and an answer to do it again and again and again. And we come out from our sitting or from five days in retreat and and realize that I just got nowhere with that question. So really try to get that in your mind that your thinking is going to do you no good. Just, just to kind of notice the energetic quality of it in this particular modality. Of course... We need that kind of thinking in our home life. But here it's not going to really work, you know, when we think too much about a certain thing. So um, it's really important with this effort or energy also to make it just right, not too much, not too little. So I want to read something from uh, this book that... uh, it took Steve Armstrong and myself and others about 16 years to finally edit, and it finally got released uh, in May. It was April or May? So I'll tell you about it tomorrow. But this is from Mahasi Sayadaw, our grandfather teacher, and uh, from with what is called the Manual of Insight, and it's just a, a very um, extensive and very profound book about what happens when we start looking at the mind. Sometimes it's, um, it can get to be a little too detailed. So um, it's not one of those books or bedtime reading books. <laughs> <laughs> so this is about virya or energy, effort. You should exert moderate effort or energy, If you begin your practice with too much, you will become overzealous and restless, and your practice will not improve. On the other hand, if you begin your practice with too little, your effort will not be strong enough for your practice to improve, and you'll become lethargic. So you should exert a moderate effort in practice, reducing effort when it's too strenuous and boosting when it's too weak. So one thing I appreciate is that he did provide very practical advice in in this book for us. So I'm just remembering, uh, just as an example, when I practiced at uh, the monastery that I usually go to in Burma, it's really, it's very rigorous practice. You get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, you have to begin your walking practice in the hall at 3.30, so that at 4 o'clock you're sitting and then you you sit from 4 to about 5.30, and then you go to the hall to eat. And the walking to the hall and being in the eating hall is still practice. You don't stop practicing. Even the eating, everybody does in silence, etc. And so, um, during that practice, you really have to watch your effort and energy because you could get really tired out. I was in my 50s when I... I've practiced from my 20s, but I was in my 50s when I became a nun, um, for a temporary nun. And I, I realized, wow, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. I really had to modulate my energy in order to keep up with everything. So what I would do is, um, this is just a little secret, when I would do my bows, you know, I would stay a little longer on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> These are just little ways that you find out how to do it. So just you know a few seconds of just resting there. and then when I would do my walking practice because it was so there was so much precision all the time, I just that was just too much for me. So I knew sometimes I had to rest the eye door. so when I get to a place when, and there's a walking practice outside and that I could get to the end of the walking. And I would just stand there, do standing meditation, and I'd let the restfulness of the eyes happen. And I'd just notice seeing, seeing, seeing for a few moments and have that little rest. And then, then I would know, okay, turning. Then I would turn around, go the other direction. And so there are different things you can do. We're not asking you to do that kind of modulation here. But for, by all means, get horizontal You know, during your, your time here. And um, sometimes when I see you falling asleep, I think you need it. You know, you, you might need that little time of just in your practice. <laughs> and then you wake back up again and it's fine, you know. And so <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, you know, if you get too much into it, your neighbor's going to tap you on the shoulder, so it's going to be all right. So no one succeeds without effort. Um, mind at peace is not your birthright those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance mm-hmm. so this is what is true also it's just that constant energy so the, <clears throat> that's the investigation and energy um, and the third energizing quality is called PT. And that's delight in our practice. When when all of the others are happening, it's said that if you just do mindful awareness, it, that kind of investigation I was talking about, and you apply this kind of modulated energy, the remaining of all the others that I'm going to um, describe briefly come up naturally. So you just have to do these first three, and the rest will naturally come up like what we call PT, energizing quality of interest and, and it brings delight in your practice. So it you notice that your practice is very agile and it can see everything with a kind of quality of seeing it clearly. And because of that, uh, it doesn't happen all the time, of course. I mean, it, it can go into different phases of Not being that, but still energy is there. But there's this delightful period that happens when we're feeling like we're... um, uh, There's a little bit of joy in the mind. Kind of contentedness with how things are. And the mind isn't going here and there. It has a sense of real interest in whatever is in the present moment. So that's why it's called joyful interest. That interest is there in what's going on. So, it's not spacing out into some kind of joy. It's there's interest in the present moment. There's a feeling, sense of lightness and agility. There's an open quality to the mind. It feels infused with energy. It's very workable. The mind is very workable. One thing that happens is the coarse and the gruff, painful, uh, rough, painful sensations in the body all of a sudden become smooth. It's like mindfulness is touching them, and it's like silk almost, or like you know water going by, just very smooth. It doesn't happen all the time, so if, you know don't be disappointed if that's not happening. Sometimes it feels like goosebumps come up on your body out of nowhere, and um, there might be a momentary energetic bolt of lightning that goes through your body, like all of a sudden that kind of energy, this is when this kind of stuff is happening. Sometimes they call it rapture because you really feel like you can't even walk on the ground. It's um, The ground is moving and there's just this incredible feeling of grace and beauty in your body. So that's when you... you uh, say to yourself, Oh, the pleasure of the Dhamma exceeds all other pleasures when when you feel that kind of pleasure in your body. Now this isn't the end- all and be-all of practice. Sometimes people go through this and think, Oh, now I'm enlightened, you know but actually it's just a phase in practice. And in all these phases in practice, the mind may go there and then it can go back to something else and go to that and go on to something else and then go back again it constantly kind of spirals in and out of something and um, we experience these things many times not just once so the energizing factors investigation, energy and um, and that joyful delight, stabilizing factors are calm and tranquility and it feels like, like with delight in the mind, it feels like you're walking in a desert and you see from afar you see a body of water and you're very thirsty so you kind of get all excited about it but when you go to the next factor which is actually um, kind of a, a deepening in your practice it's calm and tranquility and that's when you actually reach that body of water is what it feels like and you drink the water and you feel really calm inside so you feel a really really big difference between that bit of excitement and the joyful energy and then it just gets really calm and that feels more deep in a way so that's calm and then the second factor is samadhi or concentration and in vipassana it's on changing experience but sometimes, you know, we stay with the breath a little longer and that's kind of staying with one experience. So the function of samadhi is to collect the mind. So it collects the mind so it's not dis- dissipated or dispersed and it doesn't get lost in, in um, thinking so much or it doesn't get kind of caught up in any kind of an object. So that's when the mind feels very unified and what happens is when the energy goes into that concentration over and over and over again, it creates a force field where the hindrances can't come in. And so it really feels um, very protected in that space. It, the hindrances can, can be kind of there, but they're so far away and they're, they're muted. But you really feel a protection. It might be just for a few moments... It could be for many moments. The subjective experience of that is the mind is, is feeling really secluded during that time. Now, I'm, I can this can be for momentary also. It doesn't have to be for a long period of time. And the last stabilizing factor is equanimity. Um, equanimity is the, the highest of all the um, Brahma-viharas, it's called the queen or the king. Uh, in, when they're in the four Brahmaviharas section, you know there's metta or loving kindness, there's compassion, there's sympathetic joy, and there's equanimity. It's called the king or the queen because it's, uh, it can hold everything but not react to it. It can hold what's pleasurable and not hold on. It can hold what's unpleasurable, not push away. So what's happening when it's in Vipassana is there's this um, non-reactivity. There's this deep non-reactivity to whatever is happening. It's a result of calm, concentration, and continuity of mindfulness on changing objects. So it, it feels actually much more powerful than calm and concentration. Because... Uh, Things can arise in the field but the mind feels incredibly steady with whatever's happening. So it's not it's not kind of chasing after what's going on. In fact, things can happen very, very fast within that equanimity but there's that incredible stability of the mind. It's deeply balanced, it's stabilized and it's very spacious. It can really it can hold a lot, but not cling to anything, not push away anything. So this equanimity, which I'll speak about tomorrow, is called the doorway to Nibbana. Because it's the last factor after, after concentration. It's the last factor bef- that is in the mind before the mind leaps into the unconditioned. So that, that was a big difference between uh, the Buddhist teaching um, and the teachings of the time, that uh, from this equanimity it could leap into something that was beyond uh, what he was experiencing before from just concentration. So equanimity is a really important uh, factor. It's called resting the mind before it falls into extremes. it doesn't go to the extreme of attachment or aversion so more about that tomorrow so these factors are all those experiences that uh, we are having moment to moment, you come to recognize them more clearly, Um, sometimes they're actually happening in your practice but you don't know yet how to recognize them you know, there might they might be just momentary, so don't look for them, but be ready to see them when they're there. Just um, be like that. Um, there's a way that this was explained to me one time. Um, some friends of mine went to a safari in Africa and noticed that the guide was uh, a um, you know on the on the jeep. And he wasn't looking for anything, but he just waited till he saw a sign of any movement somewhere. And then, you know, then he would just kind of look that way very gently. And that's how we should do it in our practice. Just wait for something to arise instead of looking for it, because the looking for will obscure it. Wait for something to arise and just with very, very, vent- gentle movements of your mind, turn your attention to that. It might, might not even have to turn to that. It might be right in front of you in that moment. So be, just be um, in that kind of vigilance, not the over-vigilant way. So these are the seven factors of awakening. Mindfulness is the linking factor The uh, investigation, energy, and joyful interest are the activating and um, active factors, energetic ones. Calm, concentration, and equanimity are the tranquilizing, stabilizing factors. So see if you can remember, you know, interject this into your hearts and minds. uh, The Buddha's words that You are the light. You are the refuge. There is no other place to take refuge but yourself. So within us is that propensity, that potential for all of these factors to get stronger and to cause the total awakening of the mind and heart. So let's sit for a moment. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.